Um, as many of you know, we just got back from Dallas, Texas for the Southern Baptist Convention. And before the actual business part takes place on Tuesday and Wednesday, they have the pastors conference where they bring in just wonderful pastors um, all around the United States uh, for Sunday and Monday. And a great uh, group of pastors. Uh, it was concluded with J.D. Greer, who's now the new president but after it was all done, H.B. Charles uh, Jr., who's a pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, he led all the pastors there, about three or 4,000 pastors, in this song, He Will Hold Me Fast. And it was just a beautiful time to remind us of our great God. And as we sang that hymn, I was reminded of what we read in Second Timothy chapter 2. It says, This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So it is good that we are here together. It is good that we are coming together to rejoice in the gospel, to rejoice in our common confession in Jesus Christ. And I'm glad to be able to bring the word to you this morning. As I mentioned, uh, we just got back from Dallas, Texas. I sent an email out to everybody, so if you didn't get that email, um, we need to add you to the email list. Um, but we had a good time there in Dallas. Uh, one thing is for sure that Texas is hot. Um, I think we got into our vehicle and it said 105 at one point, and so it is very hot there. But uh, we enjoyed our time together, re- reconnecting with old friends. There was a, a pastor, uh, Trent, who's working with... Uh, refugees in the Atlanta area. He just happened to sit down where we were sitting down, literally on the floor, because there wasn't any room for tables. And he said, Steve, and said, where have you been? So we got to reconnect with him, got to meet some new friends, some uh, pastors in Vicksburg, Mississippi. It was a joy to get to know them. And it was good to just uh, fellowship and sing and pray and rejoice and hear good preaching together um, with my family. And while I was there, as any pa- good pastor would do, I picked up some books. Uh, amen. I knew I'd get an amen out of Mike. Now, um, I encourage you to try to beat Mike Johnson to the front pew after the service because I've laid out all these books on the front pew. I gave Jim Kidd first shot, so he might have taken a book or two. But uh, I got about 15 or 16 books there on the front pew. Many of them were free. Uh, commentaries were $5, so I snagged up a few of those. And so feel free to grab one of those books, read it and return it, or share it with a friend. Um, a lot of great titles there. Well, this morning, I'm going to continue my topical series on... Uh, First, we talked about what, it, what does it mean to be created in the image of God. This morning, we're going to talk about manhood. Next week, we're going to talk about womanhood. Again, there's a lot of things that we could say about these, these subjects, um, especially in light of what the culture is saying. So we're going to try to look at what God's Word is saying from Genesis chapter 2. I am going to be referring to a book that I picked up at the convention called The Masculine Mandate by Richard D. Phillips, a great book that talks about What does it mean to be created in the image of God as a man? So this morning, we're going to look at several passages, but most specifically, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Two weeks ago, we looked at what does it mean to be created in the image of God. Last week, if you were here, you heard from uh, Brother Dane Hayes as he preached on um, the fear of man and what does it mean to please God and worship God above all else. But today, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. 
If you would, stand with me as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 2. This is right after the creation account. We read these words. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I'm going to continue on. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, or saying, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Lord, we thank you that you have taught us who you are, revealed yourself to us through your word. So Lord, pray now, even now, as we look at your word, that we will receive it with thanksgiving, that we will apply it to our hearts Lord, that we will repent where we need to repent. We will turn away from our foolishness and that we will turn to you. Father, I ask, Lord, that you might fix our eyes upon you. Lord, our culture tells us many things about men and women, tries to blur the gender lines and tries to do many things that your word says are abominable. So, Father, I pray that we will look to your word and that we will obey it in all things. Father, help us to understand your word, receive the truth, apply the truth in our lives. But Lord, also help us to teach these truths with grace and gentleness to others. For what do we have that we have not received? So let us not boast as if we have not received it. So Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you will remind us that you are gracious and patient to us. Lord, lead us, Father, to follow you in faith a faith that obeys you at all costs, a faith that obeys your commands. Lord, we know that you are good and your commands that you have given to us are good. So Lord, let us not shirk your commands or turn away from your commands. But Father, I pray that we will obey you in all things. Lord, we thank you for those who are in Christ, that we are not alone, that we have the Holy Spirit, the great comforter and teacher to point us to Christ, to remind us of truth, to correct us in the truth, and to love you and to teach us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, Lord, fill us with your spirit this morning. 
Lord Jesus, Lord, remind us that we are not alone. Lord, teach us that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you help those who are afflicted. And Father, we thank you that you are our Heavenly Father, that you are Father to the fatherless, and that you show us what it means to be a father. So Lord, we thank you for this day where we honor fathers. As we think about what it means to be a father, what it means to be a man, Lord, teach us from your word. Father, I pray again that we will obey your word, sanctify your people as we look forward to the coming day of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to look at this passage in Genesis 2. We'll look at other passages as well. But right off the bat, in this passage, Genesis 2, I encourage you to look and keep your uh, your Bibles open as we look at this passage. But right off the bat, we read of man's responsibilities from the very beginning. In Genesis 2.15 says, God put him in the garden. He put him in the garden for a reason, and we see right off the bat what that reason is. You know, men want to know, what's my job? What's my job description? What am I to do? And we see Adam's job description here in Genesis 2. He is to work the garden and keep the garden. Now, um, I'm not very good at working my garden and keeping my garden. In fact, while I was away, um, Josh took care of our garden. He's staying with us this summer, if you didn't know that. And he made our, our garden grow much better than when I was there. And so I think he's got a full-time job at taking care of our garden. Our strawberry and kale is growing nicely. But uh, he, we see here that... Adam is to keep, is to work and to keep the garden. These are two adjectives that sometimes we run away from. We don't, well, I don't like the idea of work or keeping, but these are adjectives that should stay in our vocabulary. To work is to labor and to make things grow. To keep is to protect and to sustain progress already achieved. So this is what Adam is called to do. He's called to work and he's called to keep the garden. So he has this sphere of responsibility. God has placed him in the garden. He's placed him in the garden to to, um, cultivate the garden, to protect the garden. This is his area of domain. But sometimes when we think about work, automatically we think, well, that's not something I like to do. That's not something I look forward to doing. That's something I put off. But we see work through the lens of after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, and we think, oh, that's not something for me, but we must see the value of work. We were, man and woman, were created to work. Work, as Bruce Walkie says, is a gift of God. It's not a punishment for sin. Even before the fall of humanity, man had duties to perform. So we are called to work, we are called to labor, we are called to do things for God's glory. There is value in work. You, you see a, a lazy man, you see a man who uh, runs from work, and you will see a frustrated man. You will see a man who is discouraged and depressed, and so there is value in work. We must see work through the lens of the gospel. Christians, those who are united to Christ, those who are Christ followers, must see work differently than the rest of the world. The rest of the world sees work as something just to accomplish a task or to make a name for themselves or to climb the corporate ladder. But Christians, we see work as not just a a, a means to an end, but a way to glorify God. That's the way we should see work. In fact, as we think about 
work and success in our work, let me encourage you to think about these questions as you work. We are called to work hard. We are called to work for the glory of God. But think about these questions as you work. Does this work glorify God? There are some jobs, some occupations that Christians should not be doing. And I won't list those right now, but not all work is equal. Does it benefit my fellow man? Number three, do I consider myself called to this work or can I at least do it well and find enjoyment in that? Number four, does it provide for my material needs? Number five, this is very important, especially in our society where it's just uh, work 60, 70, 80 hours a week where we make our jobs our gods. We must think about, does this permit me to lead a godly and balanced life? These are good questions to ask. One of the lessons I've learned from my father is the importance of work and providing for my family. Work is good. I recently read um, other tips, other words of wisdom from a father to a son. Let me share some of those words with you. Not only is work good, one father told his son, in negotiation, never make the first offer. Return a borrowed car with a full tank of gas. When shaking hands, grip firmly and look them in the eye. Don't let a wishbone grow where a backbone should be. Give credit, take the blame. Write down your dreams. Always protect your siblings and teammates. Stand up to bullies. Protect those bullied. When entrusted with a secret, keep it. Be confident and humble at the same time. I like that list because it talks about what is alluded to here in Genesis 2 about protecting, keeping, not just protecting the garden, but protecting those who are bullied, protecting our family, keeping secrets. These are all things that remind us of our role to be men made in the image of God. But also as as man made in the image of God, we must remember that we are those who are created. We're not the creator. So we must become humble knowing that we are not God. Adam learns this in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. Look, with it, look, look again with me at this passage. Again, Adam learns he is not God because God commands him. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So again, Adam learns he is not God. He must be humble. God has given him this one command for his good. It is a life-giving command. It is an important command. It's a crucial command. And it reminds us, it points us to God's authority. You find a humble man, and you will see a man who submits to God's authority. So this reminds us of God's character, and this command it points us to eternity. And it, it points us to the fact that man and woman but especially man here with Adam, must listen. Must listen to God. This is the first point, is that men, you are called to listen. Listen to God. We must not ignore his word, ignore his commands. In order to walk with God, you must listen to God. We know with Adam that he ignored this command and he allowed Eve and himself to run headlong into sin because why? He thought he knew better. There are many times when I think I know better, even on this trip, there are times I thought I knew better than my GPS. No, I must listen to the GPS. 
Not all the times, but uh, sometimes they need to update their maps, as I found out as well. But we are called to listen to God, to heed his commands. Also, we might not only called to listen to God in this command here in Genesis 2, we are called to listen to others. This is what Proverbs speaks of. Proverbs twelve fifteen. it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Men are called to listen to God and to listen to others so that they can instruct others, so that they can instruct their children. Proverbs 19 says, If you stop listening to correction, correction, my son, you will stray from the words of knowledge. So Proverbs 12, Proverbs 18, which I skipped over, Proverbs 19, all remind us of the importance of listening, listening to God listening to wise counsel, listening to one another. So why are we to listen well? We are to listen well. We're to listen to God's word so that we can know the truth, but also so that we can instruct others in the truth. We don't want to give others just empty counsel, empty advice. We want to give them wise counsel, wise teaching. So we listen to God, listen to his word, listen to others who are filled with the spirit so that we might instruct others in the truth. So first and foremost, men, listen to me this morning. You are called to listen to God. Secondly, you are called to lead well. Many people want to lead, but in to lead, you must serve. The greatest leader serves. Jesus Christ was the greatest leader, and he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we are called to listen, but we are also called to lead. Well, where do we find um, important instruction on leadership? Here in Genesis 2. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, when people asked him questions about the roles of man or the roles of woman, the roles in marriage, what did Jesus do? What did Paul do? Took them back to Genesis. So we see here in, in Genesis 2, again, instructions on leadership. We read the reality of the situation in the garden and the beauty of God's design. God creates a helper for man. We see here in Genesis 2, verse 18, he says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then in 19 and 20 as well, it talks about the importance of leadership. But here, we see that God creates a helper for man. Woman was created equal. Please hear me say that. Equal in essence with man. They're created equal, but they have different roles. We don't, I don't, I won't list the ways a woman helps man, but suffice to say, the list is long. And that'd be a whole nother sermon. But woman helps man in many ways, and the text says that God created woman as a helper fit for him. As I was thinking of Doug up here this morning, it was clear that Doug has given faith as a wonderful and perfect helper fit for him. He needs faith. I think we all would say amen. So faith compliments Doug just as the wife compliments the husband. She is The woman is similar to him, but she's not the same as him. Isn't that a good thing? Amen. She is to compliment him. God creates woman to compliment man just as puzzle pieces fit together and show us the bigger picture, a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture that God has designed. So we see that man is created first. He is created to lead. 
And so when we think about the man's role of leadership, it includes but is not limited to taking initiation, showing loving communication, and giving direction and protection in the home. That's just a few of the ways the man is to lead. But let me be clear, male leadership does not mean that he is to do everything and to decide everything. That is not what is talking about in this text. But as the man leads, typically this means that men are to initiate discussions. Not always, but usually to initiate discussions and decisions that need to be made. A good leader not only values the input of others, he receives the, receives the input of others, and he defers to others so that the best decision can be made. Overall, the husband in a given home is to lead, direct, and to oversee the family as they seek God together. So the husband is called to lead, but he is called to lead in a way that serves and loves his wife. We see here in Genesis 2, verses 19 and 20, that God gives Adam, the first man, his, his first major assignment in the area of leadership. What is he called to do? What does he do? Here in verse 19, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, I don't know what that process looked like. I don't know how long that process took, but that was a first serious major task of leadership for the man. We see that he is given responsibility, and he shows responsibility in completing this task. Listen to what Richard Phillips says about this. He says, Notice how the Lord brought all the animals and the birds to the man so that they answer to Adam. From that point, their identity reflected Adam's lordship. They bore the names assigned to them by the highest of all God's creatures. Adam was God's ordained servant as lord of the garden, just as men today are to be God's servants in our exercise of authority. Lordship, or as we would say it today, leadership, is intrinsic to the male calling in the world. God calls all men to exercise leadership, lordship, within some sphere of life, at home through marriage and fatherhood, in the workplace, in the church, and in society in general. It is of the greatest urgency that men understand and embrace a biblical idea of leadership. This is not misusing leadership. This is not misusing authority. This is carrying out God's role of leadership in the home. We live in a day and an age where men are told to get in touch with their feminine side. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but I don't want to know what that looks like. I know one guy who said his feminine name was Sharon. Now, that's ridiculous. We must ignore such advice. This is the foolish culture speaking. We are called to listen to the voice of God. What are men called to do? They're called to get in line with the biblical side of things. Biblical pictures of masculinity reveal servant leaders. Sometimes um, we hear leader and we think of dictator. When I say leader, I'm talking about a servant leader. Servant leaders lay down their life for others. Just as Adam led in the garden, we are called to lead in the occupations he calls us to. More importantly, above all, we are called to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, but especially men, we are called to lead in the example of obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Again, we see what does it mean to be a man? We are to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul gives us these metaphors of a soldier, of an athlete, of a farmer, pointing us these masculine images. And what do they do? They train, they suffer, they labor. But here he points all these metaphors to say that they obey Jesus. So men, you are called to obey Jesus. You are called to follow him. You are called to lead your wives and your children, not multiple wives, but singular wives. You're called to lead them in your homes. Fathers are called to lead their children. This is a difficult task. I know as, as a father who has five children, each of them are different. Each of them need to be parented slightly differently, but each of them need to be shown the gospel. And I was encouraged by this quote by Dr. Russell Moore, who was at the Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas, a great defender of the faith. He said this, he said, Raising boys, there's a great deal of learning in the home. They watch how their dad treats women. And when you pass a sexually explicit billboard, take that uncomfortable opportunity to explain why the way of Jesus is different than the way of the world. We are called to teach our children, to teach our boys, to teach our girls what does it mean to follow Jesus. There are several examples of leadership through the Bible. We talked about the one in 2 Timothy. But the leader as shepherd is a main metaphor and a primary illustration throughout the Bible. Shepherds, fathers, men are to watch over, protect, and lead the sheep entrusted to them. Of course, we know Jesus' word where he calls himself the good shepherd. In Psalm 23, we read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But even earlier, we read that Abel was identified as a keeper of sheep. So shepherds live among the sheep. They share the hardships, risks, dangers, and they seek the overall well-being of the sheep. So let me ask this question specifically to the men here this morning. Men, are you shepherding the hearts of those closest to you? Are you shepherding the hearts of those closest to you, those that God has given to you to shepherd? Are you sharing the burdens they carry? Are you caring for them and seeking their overall good? One of the ways we do that is, the primary way we do that is by loving them. I know you've probably heard me say this many times, but it's always harder to love someone. And sometimes it's easier to love those that you don't know. But it's always harder to love those who are closest to you. So, men, you are to listen to God. Men, you are to lead others well. But lastly, men, you must love God. And if we love God, we will love others. 
Again, I've been drawing from Genesis 2 in a very surface uh, overview way, but now look with me in Ephesians 5. Men, you are called to love others. Look with me in Ephesians 5. Paul talks about the importance of loving others in this chapter. We, he calls us to imitate God. And then in Ephesians 5 verse 2 it says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we are called to walk in love. We are called to love others because we know love. We know what it means to be loved because we've been shown the greatest example of love, Jesus Christ. Not just in the way he lived, but in going to the cross, dying on our behalf. He showed us divine, sacrificial, special, supernatural love. So we are called to love others, to walk in love, to love God first and to love others well. Christians, specifically, must be marked by love. Politicians might use speeches to, uh, that, that are based in fear and manipulations, but Christians must be known by their love. We've been shown love again and again, so we must show love to others. We love our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends, but especially our spouses. When we think about when we think about the love chapter, our minds always go to where? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not insist on its own way. And that is probably the chapter that talks about love, but not far behind it is Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, we see this is the way of love. And Paul's writing to the church, this is how you are to love. But then he ends it in a beautiful way where he talks about how husbands are called to love their wives. To love their wives. How are they to love their wives? In Ephesians 5, we won't read the passage, but there he says, you're to love your wives, not tolerate your wives, but to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then he says, husband, if you are to love your wives as you love your own bodies. He says, husbands, you must love your wife as you love yourself. So, husbands, love your wives. How do you love your wife? By leading her, by caring for her, and by serving her. It's been said that the best thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother, to love them well. And why do we love in this way, in this sacrificial way? Because we have been shown the good news of the gospel. Look with me in First John chapter 4. I don't have it up on the screen, but First John shows us that God is love and we are to love because we've been shown God's love. First John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Do you want to see someone who knows God? Then you will see them by their fruits, the fact that they love others, the fact that they love sacrificially. So let me encourage you this morning. You are called to listen well, to lead well, but also to love God and to love one another. These are the two greatest commandments, Jesus said. So let me encourage you, Love one another.
Let us pray.